But as we work our way through Matthew's Gospel, we're reminded of Jesus' extraordinary teaching that you have to humble yourself to become like a child. This is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse, chapter 18, verse 3, just back over a page. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not like them in their humility, but humiliating yourself to be like them is what is required of us. And in 1914, but Jesus said, Let little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is not about being great, powerful, moral. It's not about being religious, clever or significant. The kingdom was coming as a complete reversal of attitudes, like the Beatitudes at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom was coming with the death and crucifixion of the king, something seemingly impossible to Jesus' contemporaries, something the disciples don't understand as they follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem and on the way to his crucifixion. They were still confident of the great victory, but they didn't understand this talk about his death, about being persecuted and handed over to the Gentiles, about being crucified and rising on the third day. They just didn't get it. it it's easy for us to look back and say, why are they so thick? I'm sure if we were there before the crucifixion, we wouldn't have got it either. It's such a strange, bizarre idea. That's why they were still arguing with each other over who was the greatest in the kingdom. That's why they were preventing the children to coming to Jesus. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was bringing. The way the world thinks, the way they were thinking, and the way God thinks has always been at loggerheads. We sinful humans just misunderstand God and his ways and his plans. And so we see what it means to be humble as a child in this next episode when the antithesis of humility, the antithesis of the child arrives with an impressive man. He came to Jesus and asked him in verse 16, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? He's one of the most impressive minor characters in the whole Bible, especially in the gospel events. He was an impressive man in almost every way. When we combine the three gospels that record him, Matthew, Mark and Luke, we see him as the rich young ruler, that's what we call him. All three gospels mention his great wealth, but Matthew talks about him being young and Luke's gospel calls him a ruler. But the impressive character of the man is not just his wealth and his position. He was also spiritually aware. He knew what his contemporaries didn't know about him. He knew that he didn't have eternal life. He knew that there was something missing in his life and he was looking for it, even asking Jesus for the answer. He was not like the Pharisees who come questioning Jesus to test Jesus. He came with a question that was real. He asked because he was trying to inquire. He was not a nitpicking 
question of legalism that he raised, it was a big question that he raised, eternal life. He was a man unlike the rich young rulers of Sydney who seemed totally without any spiritual awareness as they energetically chased the mighty dollar and quick trip to Pleasure Dome. But he was also an impressive man in that he was morally upright. You see, Jesus outlined some of the commandments about murder and adultery and stealing and false witness and honouring parents and loving neighbour. And without any apparent sense of pride or deceit, he answered that he'd kept all these commandments. I'm sure if Jesus had dug deeper into his motives, like he digs in the Sermon on the Mount, he would have been able to find him guilty of all of them. But superficially, at least, he could, like most Australians, say, I'm not a criminal. I'm a good person, a moral person. And Jesus doesn't challenge his response or question his morality. For it was true that he was a moral man. He was no degenerate. We mustn't let our doctrine of sinfulness overwhelm the reality that there are good moral people in the world who do not steal, who do not murder, who do not commit adultery. Of course, it's often been pointed out that there are certain commandments Jesus doesn't ask him about, like worshipping God and having no other gods but me and the commandment about coveting. There are certain ones not mentioned. But superficially, externally, this man was a moral pillar of society, as I hope you are and I hope your neighbours are. And this man was also intellectually astute. He knew he didn't have eternal life. He knew there was more to it than just simply keeping these commandments. He knew that Jesus' answer about the commandments was not the full story. He knew that what Jesus said about his wealth was right. He knew that his great wealth precluded him and that he couldn't bluff his way out of his predicament. You see, this is not an argumentative man seeking to test Jesus and then prove Jesus wrong. This is the genuine seeker who goes away sorrowfully for he knew how great his possessions were and he knew how hard it would be to give them away. He's clever enough. I know that Australians were clever enough. They think if you keep the commandments, you'll be right with God. They don't understand that there is something wholly lacking in their relationship with God. And when it is explained to them... They argue and quarrel, unlike this man who told this terrible judgment sentence of Jesus, give away all, follow me, goes away sorrowfully because he understands what's being said. And so he's an impressive man even in the way he is genuine in his error. I mean, it's a funny place to be impressive, but... He's even impressive in his error. <laughs> See, other people, lesser men, insincere men, debaters and testers, wouldn't have gone away but would have stood and argued with Jesus. Just how much money do I have to give away? And, and how am I supposed to live after I've given this money away? And what happens to the poor when I give them the money? Does that mean they don't have eternal life? Am I, by giving my money to them, condemning them? And what happens if they give it back to me, seeing I would now be poor? Does that mean whoever's holding the money when Jesus returns will miss out on heaven? It's kind of like musical money moving around. What 
there's any number of arguments the man could have advanced, but he's not like that. He's a genuine man. He went away sorrowfully. A less genuine man wouldn't have done that. They would have borne a grudge against Jesus and misreported the words, justifying themselves and saying, well, that man is a mad... We hear no more of this man. But this man knew he didn't have eternal life. He knew he wanted eternal life. And he now knew that his money stood in the way. And as the account of this event goes on, it becomes apparent that he also impressed the disciples. For when Jesus said, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the disciples were genuinely surprised. Then, who can be saved, was their question. Just on the side, there are any number of books you will read which tell you that there is a hole in a wall somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere, where a camel can squeeze through if it's got no baggage on its back, but it can't squeeze through if it has. Or I've never found where the hole is. I've never found where the wall is. I've never found where the camel is. And it's got nothing to do with what Jesus was saying at this point in time. Jesus was picking the largest beast of burden that was around, the camel, and the smallest aperture that's around, the eye of a needle, and says, you can't do it, can you? That's, it's, it's as hard as that. You don't need to have some kind of archaeological background for what is an obvious illustration. You can't pick your teeth with a telegraph post, can you? Now, that's not because somewhere out there I know that there's a telegraph post marked toothpick. It's just an obvious illustration that needs no archaeological background to understand it. Although some people seem that they do. But the disciples, you see, they, like so many of us, look at the outside of a person. And this man, he'd be an A1 disciple. This man is the man that every pastor would like in his church. This man is the man who's got it all. If if we wanted a, a poster boy for Christianity, let's get him in, photograph him, and put him outside every building and say, these are the kinds of people who come to our church. So many of us look on the outside to see what is so impressive. Youth, power, wealth, significance. Even the great prophet Samuel, if you remember, was impressed by the wrong sons of Jesse when he went looking for the second king of Israel. And Jesse himself thought little of his younger son, who just happened to be King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament, Jesse thought little of him. Oh, I've got another son, but he's out with the sheep. He's just a young kid. He's of no significance. But God doesn't look as man looks. God looks on the heart. It was because the man who met Jesus was so impressive that the whole episode turns on the wrong assumptions. Firstly, there's the wrong assumption found in the question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He was sure there was some good thing he had to do. That all the good deeds he had already done were just not sufficient. There was something else. Some other good deed that would bring him into God's favour. Jesus pointed to the answer when he reminded him that if you want to know about goodness, then go to God. There's only one who is good, that is God himself. In so doing, Jesus also challenged the idea that there was one good deed a man could do that would merit eternal life. But is also spelling out 
the commandments, that he showed the man had to be something else than morally involved. For he had to keep the commandments, and had he kept those commandments, he still wouldn't have had eternal life. It's still the wrong assumption of most people in Australia that you are saved by your good works. We save ourselves by our own efforts. We're saved because we deserve to be saved. No, we, save our, we do not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. And we do not deserve to be saved. It's all of God's grace and mercy. He was aware that all his morality had not yet given him eternal life, but he still thought another moral thing would just tip me over the balance. He still hadn't challenged the assumption that eternal life was won by doing good deeds. Assumptions like this are so hard to break and so many of our false thinkings come from false assumptions. I've tried to break through this over the years with a talk that I've often given at men's breakfasts and things like that when I'm asked to. On the heading, good people go to hell and the only people who go to heaven are bad people. That is kind of a a, a bomb in the bottom of the assumption basket. You can't say it much more explicitly than that, can you? Good people go to hell and the only people who go to heaven are bad people. Rarely do people understand what I've just said. Nearly always they think I've made a slip of the tongue, which is completely natural because I do make slips of the tongue. Those of you who are here regularly know I do. And so it's quite natural that I've made a slip of the tongue here. But I haven't. I've said what I meant. Classically, in Southampton, when we put out a a men's dinner uh, event under this heading, the printer printed all the invitations with the correction in it. Good people go to heaven and the only people who go to hell. Every invitation was wrong. When we went back and pointed out to him, he said, oh yes, I saw your mistake, but I fixed it for you. It was easier to think we had a mistake than it was to think we meant what we said. You see, Christians are not good people, we're forgiven people. If Christians were the good, moral, upright people, then I could not stand here as a Christian. If Christians were the people who were better than the others in morality stakes, then I couldn't stand here as a Christian. And in fact, nobody else could too, because as soon as you did, you'd just fallen below the morality stakes because you've got pride, haven't you? You can't, it's not the way of salvation, it's not the message. I am not a good person, I am a forgiven person. And the first prerequisite for being forgiven is being a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you can't be forgiven. And that's who we are. We're the only organisation I know where you walk in and they require you to say that you're a sinner. Every week we confess our sins. I know no other organisation does that. You want to join the golf club. They don't ask you to, to identify yourself as a sinner. Just the reverse. They get two or three of your mates to say how perfect and good and moral you are, how upright you are in order to join the golf club. There's no organisation I know which says you've got to acknowledge that you're immoral before you can join, other than the church. And yet the world still thinks that our gospel is about being moral and upright and good and better than others. I'm not quite sure how we break through this false assumption, but you see it writ large in this 
example of the rich young ruler. The secondly, the disciples have the same similar false assumption about the wealthy. When told it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they respond, well, well then who, who could be saved? What does that say about their attitude to wealth? If people who are so important, if people who enjoy the blessing of God, if people who are wealthy cannot obtain eternal life, then there's no help for the rest of us. There's no hope for the rest of us. It's so deeply grained into our Christianized culture that the rich are no better than the rest of us that for us the disciples response seems a little strange now but their response was completely normal for the first century and unconsciously it's still true in the 21st century for friends as we grow in wealth we grow in independence and we think we can do whatever we like And we think we deserve our wealth, that it comes to us by our wisdom and our hard work. And what we find we do now is pray less and thank God even less. It's our money, our money, my money. And we, I rightly deserve it, I've earned it. And frankly, We are more important and worthwhile than others who don't work as hard and aren't as careful with their money. It's their fault that they are poor. And of course, we would be invited to important parties where we are amongst people like us as opposed to people like them. The basic reason you and I are wealthy is because we're Australians. That's the basic reason. If we were born in Eritrea, if we were born in Zimbabwe, if we were born in Assyria or Syria, would we be wealthy? Now, did you choose to be born in Australia? I know some of you have chosen to migrate here, but those of us who were born here, did we choose to be born? I didn't choose to be born here. My wealth is not as a consequence of my hard labour. My wealth is a consequence of God's blessing to organise my life in this way. And I need to remember that and be thankful for the gifts that God has given me rather than to find my identity as an independent person who can care for myself and look after myself. See, we finish with the same false assumptions of the disciples, astonished that the rich find it difficult. Indeed, the rich find it harder. The rich find it impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. It was very important for the disciples to be challenged about this false assumption. It was the same failure to understand the gospel when they kept the little children away from Jesus. Notice Jesus' general maxim in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Entry into the kingdom of God, entry into the kingdom of heaven is God's work, not yours. You can't do it. You are incapable and unable to do it to become like a child to depend not on your own power strength wealth and ability but to cast yourself fully and completely upon the mercy of God the rich man typical of rich men wanted to know what he had to do the thing he found most galling was that there was nothing he could do but wholly trust upon God one of my friends in England died a year or two ago he was a powerful rich 
ruler, if ever there was. He was captain of one of the greatest schools, one of the great big private schools uh, in Britain, one of the most famous ones, you know, the rugby eating kinds of ones. He was captain of one of those. He went and read up at Oxford University and there he was challenged with the gospel. He argued and fought about it for some time. But the thing that moved him to become a Christian was the challenge to his pride when he was told that he was unable to become a Christian. That infuriated him more than anything else he'd ever had because up until that point in his life, he was always able to do anything he ever put his mind to. But when he was told that he was not able to become a Christian, then and only then did he confront his inherent pride. He was a rich young ruler whom God chose to be his own son. For with God, that which is impossible to man is possible. So God moved in his heart and broke his pride. And he gave up all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And a more humble man I think I have never met. He rejoiced in cleaning toilets. For it reminded him of his true state in life. But the event with the unnamed rich man that Jesus met had unexpected outcomes for the disciples. You see, Jesus' challenges, challenge to the rich man opened up for them more than, than the whole question of who enters the kingdom of God and who can't enter. It opened up more than the topic of riches for the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus points to job and to family and to home. It's not just money. It opened up the question of the world to come, for Jesus taught them of their place in the age to come. So verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the new age, when the Messiah regenerates all things, when the new world order of the kingdom of God has come, when the Son of Man is on his glorious throne, ruling all the nations for all time and all authority, then you who are following me will rule with me over God's people. Notice in this extraordinary verse the place and significance of Jesus. He always calls himself the Son of Man. It was a humble, self-effacing way of talking about himself. But behind the phrase was the astonishing prophecy of Daniel 7. For when the judgment day at the end of the world comes, God will give to the Son of Man all rule over all nations for all times. And that's who Jesus sees himself as. And in case you've missed that Jesus' claim to such a status, notice who's going to be given the authority to rule the world. You who have followed me. For remember the rich young ruler, not only did he have to give away all to the poor, he also had to come follow me. He grieved because of his wealth, because he didn't recognise whom he had to follow. The disciples had recognised Jesus and so had given up all to follow him. They would miss out on nothing, Jesus said, for when the Son of Man comes, you will rule over all. And it's not just them. It's everyone. It's not just them, it's everyone in verse 19. All who leave behind for Jesus, for my name's sake, will receive whatever they've left a hundredfold and eternal life. 
Nobody is going to miss out on any good thing by following the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus isn't the spoil sport of life, denying the good things of life by making difficult and hard life of sacrifice for people. Sure, following Jesus comes at a cost, but following Jesus comes with a benefit, far, far in excess of any cost you may imagine that you have to bear. My Oxford friend's funeral, younger man than me, was so large that quite a large church in Cambridge was impossible to contain all the people who wished to be there. Indeed, they had to have two funerals, a morning and an afternoon session, completely full to standing room only both times. He received a hundredfold, brothers and sisters, far more than could ever be imagined when 40 years earlier, as an undergraduate, he gave his life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I spent time a few years ago now with a lovely Jewish person who'd become a Christian, whose family was one of the prominent Jews of this city. The family threatened to expel their young child out of the family home and cut them off. All kinds of dreadful manipulation were brought to bear on this student as they chose to accept Jesus as the Messiah. In the end, they were kicked out of home with really no notice, just put on the street to fend for themselves. Before that night was out, accommodation was not only found for them, but accommodation that was supernaturally provided. As one of the elderly people was taken into old age care and we were sent an urgent message, is there a student who needs accommodation to look after our house while our elderly relative goes into aged care? And so for several years, several months, 12 months or so, they had this house provided for them for nothing. Out of the God knows how to provide anything and everything we need. Because he's provided everything for us in the first place. To give away everything I have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is to give away nothing other than what the Lord Jesus Christ has given me in the first place. It really is no gift. But even more the return of a hundredfold is the promise of eternal life. For that is what the rich young ruler lacked and he knew he lacked. And we all like my friend in Oxford and like my uh, Jewish friend. One day, well, we'll die, but we know of eternal life. Knew it in this lifetime, know it about in the next. For that is what the disciples, not the rich rulers, were given by the Son of Man who rules the world. So Jesus finishes with his other maxim down there in verse 30. The many who are first will be last and the last first. For the gospel reverses all normal expectations of a sinful world. It's not the great but the humble. It's not the wise but those whom the world would call foolish. It's not the powerful but the meek who will inherit the world. For we don't, we can't save ourselves. And until we grasp that, we will never be saved. We have to trust ourselves completely to him who was crucified for us and raised again. 
And that means letting go of self, humbling self, to become once more like a dependent, like a little child, and asking for forgiveness and life. I've read this week, for a reason that I won't go into now, of the Satanist church founded in America, where else, California, where else, by a man called Mr. LeVay. He acknowledged the worship of Satan. Mind you, he didn't believe in the supernatural, so it wasn't the devil he believed in, it's just he hated Christianity. And so he took hold of Christianity and reversed everything it said. He didn't believe in the supernatural, Christianity did, you see. And so there were two key elements to his satanic worship. And he produced a satanic Bible and there are followers around the world to this day. The two key elements, individualism, autonomy, I look after me, it's all about me, my life is run by me, I've got no responsibility for anybody else, only me, I'm the only thing that counts is me. Individualism, that marvellous independence called sin and materialism the enjoyment of all the material possessions and sensations and experiences that you can have now. It's all about getting rich now. It's about the riches of this world now. He understood the rich young ruler, perversely, and in perversity has preached the opposite to the damnation of many, many people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would reverse that thinking in this world. Reverse it in ourselves and reverse it in our society, Father, that we may not see our meaning, our purpose, our fulfilment in our wealth and our possessions, nor in ourselves and our, in, our independence, but we may trust wholly and completely in the death of the Lord Jesus, that we might cast ourselves fully on him depending totally upon him for all the good things that you would give to us in this age and in the age to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.